So this morning we're on uh, week three of a four-week series that we're calling All Things New. Um, and this series, it's a, it's a series meant to uh, help us look ahead together, right? It's meant to help us align with one another towards like a singular vision uh, as a church. So if you've missed the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been talking about what it means for us uh, to be confronted by the whole gospel narrative, right? From creation, fall, redemption, to restoration. And we've been called to turn from our cynicism, to, be, to turn from our worry, from our disbelief and our hopelessness, and to embrace a hopefulness that's rooted in God's proven steadfast love, his proven faithfulness, and his promised restoration. We've also been called to recognize uh, the continuity between like, our present reality and our future realities. By, making the, the, by realizing those, how those realities uh, work together, we then can live uh, into our created purposes together. That's the idea. By making the real Jesus known wherever we live, work, and play. And then last week, as we talked about that specifically, we kind of imagined a world and a city and even a church where this is really happening. And honestly, I've been really encouraged over the last couple of weeks. I've actually heard a lot of encouraging things from y'all as well. It's been a good a couple weeks together. But I think we need to press pause this morning, kind of press pause on this series uh, before we kind of continue to think about how God would use Redemption Church as he's making all things new. I, I want us to stop for a little bit. I shared the first week of this series a little bit about my time on sabbatical this summer. If you're not aware, I was on a sabbatical for three months this summer. Uh, my family and I were able to get away and, uh, and kind of refocus uh, with that, and it was a real blessing. And I've shared a little bit of that in that first week. I'm going to share a little bit more this morning, if that's okay. But before I took off for the sabbatical, I had formed a pretty good idea and a pretty good understanding of what a, a sabbatical should look like. And I knew that there were some particular things that I wanted to get out of it. I knew that, number one, I was exhausted and that I needed some rest. I knew I needed some time with my wife and with my kids. And I needed to focus on my health a little bit over the summer. And so I tackled sabbatical kind of like I would tackle anything else. Like I just, I wrote down a list of goals, right? I made a list of goals and things I wanted to accomplish. They weren't hard things. It was things like swimming with my kids, taking a trip with my wife, reading some books for pleasure, things like that. But it didn't take long. I was about two weeks in to the sabbatical and I just felt done. Like, it felt like it wasn't really getting anywhere, and I couldn't really handle that. I didn't know what to do with it. I think I had expected to meet God in some big way and, uh, and, and read just large portions of Scripture uh, throughout the summer, but it just didn't look like what I thought it was going to look like just a couple weeks in. I had a sabbatical coach, which was a real blessing, and with his help and with some reading some books and stuff, I, I quickly found some things that I hadn't planned on dealing with kind of Coming up to the surface, I found that I was wrapped up in some fears and some insecurities and some feelings of inadequacy. I shared that a couple weeks ago. And as I've been thinking about that, I looked back on my uh, prayer journal this week to that time period, and I found this prayer, and I'm going to share it with you. It said, I know you love me. I know that you love perfectly. I know that you love steadfastly, forever, and unconditionally. And the idea of the church, of our church, loving others in this way sounds great, and somehow it sounds doable to me. 
Yet believing that you love me in this way at a heart level has just been really hard. And I'm operating regularly from a place other than my belonging to you. See, I want us to pause the series this morning because I don't think I'm alone in that. And I think also because there should be a measure of caution. I think it's warranted to have a measure of caution uh, when we start looking forward because we're, we're a forgetful people, right? We're forgetful people who can be seduced away from remembering who God really is and what he has done and what he's doing and we forget really quickly. But when we forget, when we're seduced away, we tend to start finding our identity in our purpose or in our work or in our goals. And then we start measuring our worth by our progress towards the vision and our progress towards some goals. And then we measure our value according to our works. And before you know it, uh, we can find ourselves operating from a place other than our belonging to God. We find ourselves wrapped up in a false identity and feeling miserable and feeling like we got to achieve something. And in that cycle, we find our way right back to the same old disbelief, the same old hopelessness, the same old cynicism as we inevitably fail to do the work of redemption and restoration on our own apart from God. So this week, like I said, I just want to press pause, lest we lose the plot. Lest we get wrapped in a, up, kind of get wrapped up in a vision of what the world and the city and even this church should and could look like and somehow convince ourselves that we can make it happen. We need to be reminded of who does the work. Because no matter what we muster up, we can never redeem the world or even redeem ourselves on our own. We cannot realize last week's vision on our own, and we haven't been called to. We haven't been asked to do that. We've been called to be God's people and to let him do a work in us and through us. We've been in Revelation 21. We've read it every week so far. And we're going to read Revelation 21, uh, just verses 2 and 3 again. Uh, if you don't know where Revelation is, just go to the end of the Bible and like flip back one page, and you'll be there pretty much. Revelation 21, 2 through 3, it says this. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We talked about this new city last week, and last week we called it the Garden City. And we imagined what it might be like, right? And then we imagined what Augusta might be like if it was just even some small type of like prototype of that future new city, that future Garden City that's to come. But we need to also see that this new city in Revelation is not something that we make. It's the people that we're made into. Like this holy city comes down from God, first of all, not from us, right? And what follows in this passage isn't first about buildings or landscapes or even gardens. It is, it's not about anything man-made. It's about relationships, namely the relationship of God with his people. And this new city from God kind of like breaks in and it transforms how we relate with and how we live with our God perfectly and how we relate with and how we live with each other perfectly. 
We know that this isn't our reality quite yet, right? But when God's city breaks in, he will dwell with us and we will be, and he will be with his people and we will be with him. God's city isn't something that we make. God's city is a people that we are made into. And while this perfect and holy city isn't our total reality yet, we are already experiencing God's presence through the Holy Spirit who is with us. We talked a little bit about that over the last couple of weeks too. And we are already being made into his people, into his sons, and into his daughters. Listen to this in 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Beloved, we are God's children now, John says. Are you a Christian Like, have you confessed your sins and confessed your brokenness and you've realized your need for a Savior? Have you asked Jesus to rescue your dying heart and to bring it back to life? Have you been maybe baptized, like symbolically demonstrating that you've taken on a new identity that's rooted and founded in the person and work of Jesus who came out for your salvation through his death and his burial and his resurrection? Is that you? If that's you... And Christian, I want you to hear this. You have a new identity as a beloved child of God. That means his love is set on you as his child. His love is set on us as his children. And if that isn't you, it can be. I just want you to hear that. He would adopt you. He would make you his own if you'll have him. But for those in Christ... You and I are called beloved. God has set his love on us. That's who we are. That's the identity that we ought to live from. But also, like I said, we don't live in this new city quite yet. Everything is not quite yet new. Things aren't yet all made new, right? 1 Peter 5, 8 warns us that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We know that this adversary that Peter's talking about, that he's slick, that he's manipulative, that he's crafty. In Genesis 3.1, way back at the beginning of the Bible, he's not a lion, right? But he's a serpent in the garden, and it says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. You see, this adversary that we have. He attempts to manipulate and to deceive us with the same craftiness and the same kind of lies that he whispered to Eve through the serpent way back in Genesis in the garden. You know, back then, he made Eve second-guess God's character by feeding her lies, getting her to believe that maybe God hadn't told her everything that there was to know about who she was and who she could be. And he does the same to us. He gets us to believe that God has only created us to put us to task. Right? That we're only good to him if we achieve something for him. And that any love that he might have for us is only given 
to those who add up. He's an imposter. He's an imposter who turns things around, makes us question the truth about who God is and what he does and who that makes us, and he whispers all kinds of lies in our ears and walks us into like setting up other things as God in our heart and mind. And I deal with this imposter too. And I've personally bought into the lies that the enemy feeds me. Here's some of the lies that I hear and that I heard really strong this summer. You're not good enough and you're not qualified. Like you're not a good enough husband or father. How could you be a good enough husband and father? Like you have a broken home. You don't even know what that looks like. How could you be qualified? How could you be good enough? If you're going to be loved, you need to prove that you can cut it in those roles because you're not good enough. I also hear lies like this. You're not qualified as a pastor. You don't have the right degrees, the right background, the right personality, and if people really knew you, it's doubtful that most would even want to be your friend. That's brutal. It's brutal. And it creates a lot of fear and a lot of shame and a lot of guilt when I believe those lies. And I've exhausted myself trying to impossibly redeem myself. And the real me, when I believe those lies, the real me, the beloved child of God, me, ends up hiding somewhere sort of naked and ashamed like Adam and Eve in the garden. Like I said, during my sabbatical, I found out pretty quick that this is where I was. Like I was wrapped up in some fears and in some security, insecurities and feelings of inadequacy. And I knew it to some extent. Like I, I mean, I was, I was fighting the imposter on purpose. I knew it was all lies. And I was trying to combat it with the truths of scriptures. But like down in my gut and down in my heart where I was where our belief really comes from, I was believing all the lies. Like I said, it was really a blessing to have a sabbatical coach because I got to talk through some of this stuff over the summer. Somebody from the outside who I could come out of hiding with, sort of, I guess. But I was talking through this with John, my coach, and he tells me this story from The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And if you've read the book then you know the premise. If you haven't, it's basically a book. It's the idea of the, the book is that a busload of tourists from hell get to go and see part of heaven. And then once they're there, they're all kind of confronted in different ways, and they even have an invitation to stay. It's not fact. It's not meant to say this is how things are really going to be or anything like that. It's a story, right? But in the story, one of these tourists who's from hell and is in heaven, is described as having a little lizard sort of attached to his shoulder. And the lizard's like moving and twitching and, and just like jabbering and chattering and whispering in this man's ear. It's annoying. And he's doing it so much that the man decides that he just can't take it anymore and he's heading back to the bus that's going to just take him back to hell. But as he begins to leave, he's confronted by an angel He says, leaving so soon? And the man explains, well, like, this lizard 
is acting up. I shouldn't even have brought him. I know I shouldn't have brought him, but he said he would be good. Uh, but, you know, he's just out of hand. And, uh, and basically because of this litter, lizard, I just have to go. I don't belong here. And the angel says, do you want me to kill it? Do you want me to kill the lizard? And they kind of start going back and forth. Like the man wants the lizard to be gone and he wants him to be silent. But he also can't give the order. Like he's scared of the pain it might cause. And this goes on for a little while. And then the angel assures him, basically, that this is going to hurt, but you're not going to die. And the pain won't last, and the lizard will be dead and gone. And so finally, the man gives permission. And the angel, like, reaches down, and he squeezes the lizard and rips him off of the man. And he breaks the lizard's back, and he throws him to the ground, and he dies. And the man, who had been kind of like ghostly in appearance because he didn't belong there, becomes real. It becomes flesh and blood, solid, right? There's one that belongs in heaven. And then this lizard changes into like a great white horse and the man climbs on the horse and he rides off into heaven. It's a story of redemption, a story of restoration. And that story really got to me because I too knew what was on my shoulder. It was brokenness from my childhood, brokenness from my own mistakes, from my own sins. And it was like I was able to let Jesus help me recognize what plagued me, but I wasn't letting him redeem it. I wasn't letting him kill the lizard. I was carrying it all. I was working to redeem myself. And I'm telling you this because I'm a Christian and I'm a pastor And five to six times a year, I lead a gospel fluency class at this church where we identify our idols, we confess them to one another, and we prove how Jesus is better than them to one another. But the imposter was still getting through with me, and I couldn't come out of hiding for fear and guilt and shame. There's this verse that I memorized when I was a child, 2 Timothy 1.7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And I remember that verse this summer, and then in a book by Frederick Beekner, I read this. It said, perfect love casteth out fear, John writes in 1 John 4.18. And then the other side of that is that fear like mine casteth out love, even God's love. And I sat with that for a while. For weeks. And I confessed that I was keeping his love at bay. I was trying to be lovable on my, my own accord before I'd totally accept his love. And I, and I asked God to let his perfect love cast out my fears. To kill the imposter. And to help me believe that what he says of himself in scripture is true. He's not a spirit of fear. And then I asked him to help me recognize fear as a clue that I was being manipulated by the imposter. And then I asked for help to believe that not only what he says of himself is true in Scripture, but what he says of me is true in Scripture. And that is that I am a beloved child of God. Redeemed not through anything that I've done. I can't make myself lovable. Nothing I can do. Redeemed only by the blood of Jesus Christ, my rescuer. And I'm sharing all that personal 
story and testimony from this summer. Because I've been telling you that since I've been back over and over again that I'm excited and that I'm expectant and that I'm hopeful. And it's because he heard my prayer. Right? And he lifted up my head in hopelessness. He's redeeming me. He's restoring me. He's brought me out of hiding. He's renewing a right spirit in me. And he is killing the imposter. And he's helping me operate increasingly in and from the truth that I am a beloved child of God. And it's the best thing ever. It's the best thing ever. And so... When I went through that this summer, I knew by the end of it, before I came back, that this is what I wanted for our church. Like, I want us to be a people who are experiencing the good news of Jesus in fresh new ways over and over and over again. I want us to be a people who are continually being transformed into his likeness and who are unashamed of who they once were and can even talk about it because we know whose we now are. I want us to be a storytelling people because people who experience something really good tell others about it without ceasing. If we're experiencing the good news of Jesus, we're going to talk about it with one another. That's why I wanted to pause the series this morning and talk about this. It's just to take the time to be really clear that this new city that we read about in Revelation, it's not something that we make. It's a people that we are made into, a beloved people, God's own people, because I want us to be ready, because I know this too, I know that we're still here, we're in like this already not yet thing, right, so we're still here, and I know the imposter will whisper in my ear again, and I know he'll whisper in yours, and I know that he's going to whisper in our collective ear as a church as well, and try to blur our identity as God's people. I know that we can be tempted to begin to redefine who we are by our work or our productivity or, or whatever else. And individually, the imposter will try to keep us isolated from one another like Eve in the garden. The imposter will tell us and tell you that you need to add up, that you need to build something, that you need security, that you need success, that you need approval, that you need recognition, or a hundred other things in order to be valuable. But it's not true. No matter what you muster up, you can never redeem yourself. And you haven't been called to. You haven't been asked to do that. You've been called to be God's beloved child. And to let him do a work in and through you. And I know that as a church, the imposter can come into a series like a vision series. And he could try to twist and turn the vision of that new city on its head. And we could start finding our collective identity and how we progress in our mission. And how many people come to our service. And how many people we baptize. And how many missionaries we send. Or how many churches we plant. But the vision isn't really about what we can make. It's about who our God is making us. No matter what we muster up together, even, we could never redeem the world on our own. And we haven't been called to, and we haven't been asked to. We've been invited to be ministers of reconciliation. We've talked about that the last couple weeks. But it's it's only accomplished by just being God's people and letting him do a work in us and through us. 
I really just want to encourage you this morning. Like, that's it. Pretty much done. That's it. I just want to encourage you this morning. My hope is that maybe, like, you hear a little bit of my testimony, even just from the last few months, and that you're empowered to live from the hope that comes from the news of who God is and what he's done and who that makes you, a beloved child of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is how the vision of the future becomes a reality. He makes us new. Christ works out his restoration by restoring us to our created and right identity and our right purpose. He makes us new. He makes us his children. So how does God want to do his work and accomplish his purposes through you? I think you're just invited. Be restored. Be, just be loved by your heavenly Father. Submit to Christ. Let the Spirit move through you and change you and call you out of hiding and out of your shame and guilt and fear. And let your joy that you find in him undignify you. And free you. Let him transform you because the rest is going to flow out of that. If you are in Christ, you are his child. You are precious to him. And his love is set on you and he's not going to let go. So just bask in it and live from it. We're going to enter into a time of response as we do each week. And there's a few ways we can do this. I mean, a few ways we can respond. One, the band will come and they'll lead us in, uh, in worship through music. And uh, we can stand and sing and praise our God who is our Father. And, uh, and just sing His praises, just knowing what He's done to make that a reality. You can also sit and pray and reflect. And you can grab somebody and talk if you need to also. Also, there's an offering basket in the back. If you're a member of Redemption Church, you can give our tithes and offerings there. There's other ways to do that as well, but we do that as an act of obedience and an act of worship together also. And then lastly, we come down these corner aisles and we take the bread and we dip it in the wine or the juice. The bread symbolizing Christ's body that was given for us. The wine, the juice, representing his blood that was shed for us. And as we do this, we are proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and that he's made a way for us to be in right relationship with our Father, that he's come, that he's redeemed us, he's done something we can't do on our own. And we're remembering that together. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member at Redemption Church or not, we invite you to come and to proclaim Christ and remember him together. If you're not a Christian and you can't say that, then we, we, we ask that you not come. But it's not because we want to keep you out or anything like that. It's just because what we're saying is that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. So come and say that with us if you can say it. I'm going to lead us in prayer and we'll move into that time. Our Father, thank you for making us your sons and daughters. Thank you for Jesus, our brother, who died on the cross, who was buried, who raised again, and who sits at the right hand of you, our Father. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who you sent to be with us. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to to work in us, to make us more and more like you. 
Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would just open the eyes of our hearts, that we would know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth, just how great and big your love is for us, your children. Man, would it just transform us? Call us out of hiding. Call us to freedom. Call us to be new creation in you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.